Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The True Cry Podcast. Robin, we are live. Welcome back to the show. Did you know that you're the first non-podcast host who's been on the show more than once? Oh, that's great. <laughs> Delighted. Is that an honour? Or are you like, yeah, I think I it is. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not bothered. Yeah. <laughs> so I've got Robin Jirossi back with me. You came on last time to discuss Murder by the Sea. That's right, isn't it? The book that that's you did. That's right, yeah. yeah. So we've got another book that's come out here. Yeah, Hard on the Heels, yeah. Yeah, May 11th it came out. When this drops is probably a couple of weeks after, but it's called The Real Ted Hastings. Now, the first thing I need to point out, and I'm probably in the minority here, I've never seen Line of Duty. You are in the minority. (laughs) But my listeners are thinking, Jesus Christ, how have you not seen that? So this book is based on the real Ted Hastings, right? Yeah. So Robert Mark is the focus of this book, and he was... What, the, the chief of the Met at some point? Tell me a little bit about Robert Mark and, and his background, if you could. Yeah, I, I mean, the uh, line of duty is not uh, like a, a biographical dramatization of him. It, it's basically, in, he he's often cited as the inspiration for a kind of campaigning uh, anti-corruption cop because he kind of broke the mold in the early 70s when he was appointed as commissioner of the Met because there had been a culture of basically indifference or playing down corruption that there was um, in in policing at the time and trying to keep it all in-house and sweeping a lot of things under the carpet and, you know, nothing to see here kind of thing. And he actually came in and said, look, if the public are going to trust us, we've got to be seen to actually take this seriously and we've got to open it up and be upfront about things. and." He basically took on a lot of corruption, made a lot of enemies in CID, some some of whom still can't stand him even, even to this day. But what he did do was he managed to weed out something like 500 officers under suspicion of uh, wrongdoing in his uh, almost five years at the Met. So even today, when, um, for instance, Cressida Dick recently was um, – removed as London Met mayor, uh, sorry, as as commissioner. 
um, even today, people still hark back to Robert Mark. And so you you, you still see uh, the newspapers will say, you know, not since Robert Mark. And he's still a, a reference point for the way to deal with corruption, which very few commissioners have ever been able to uh, live up to. And so that's why he's kind of seen as the embodiment of the kind of no-nonsense anti-corruption cop in line of duty. How unique is it to come into a role such as Commissioner of the Met and to put your focus primarily on corruption? Because I can't imagine, based on the figures I've been looking at, prior to him coming in, there wasn't that many arrests or that many investigations regarding corruption. So it sounds like it it was quite unique to come in and focus on that. Yeah. I, I mean, in 1969, there was a major scandal which uh, w- was kicked off by the, the Times newspaper, um, actually bugged some bent coppers who were basically bleeding um, a, a criminal dry. And they were they were um, extorting money from him. And he went to the newspapers and said, look, these police are doing this to me. Now, the Times had the foresight to um, bug his car and record their conversation. So it didn't become a he said, he said sort of thing. They actually had evidence. And for the Times in 1969, not not a scandal sheet, but the, the establishment paper to come up with this story w- w- actually shocked everybody. I mean, it was such a shocking event that Scotland Yard had detectives who were virtually criminals or were criminals. And one of the detectives who was recorded came up with with an expression, which is still quoted all the time today. He said that he and his colleagues were a firm within a firm. And that is still quoted all the time. And it's echoed down the years, that idea that you have small network of of police here and there who are basically bent. Um, And this was hugely shocking. And so there was never much focus on actually dealing with corruption because it was so well tidied away all the time. And, And it there weren't any of these exposés. This was one of the first major exposés in the post-war years. There had been one or two others, but this was an absolute blockbuster. And it was followed very soon after in in the early 70s by the, the Sunday people exposing uh, ties between corrupt officers and the porn trade in Soho, which was an even bigger story. There were more officers involved, higher level, and tens of thousands of pounds exchanging hands. So that was the backdrop to him coming in. And he was not wanted by Scotland Yard. I mean, he was an unpopular choice. He was basically pushed on Scotland Yard by the Home Office, who had decided that something really needed to be done. We couldn't have this stuff hitting the newspapers all the time. Someone needed to come in and actually deal with it and stop saying there's nothing to see here. It's all fine. It's just the odd rotten apple. And and that was the background to him coming in. And he ruffled a lot of feathers when he came in because he wasn't um, an establishment man there. He came from the provinces. He, he, he'd served in um, Manchester and then he'd become chief constable in Leicester. And um, he was an outsider and he, he wasn't liked. And when he turned up and had his first meeting with CID and accused accused many of them of being bent and said he'd put them all back in uniform, this was a huge culture shock. Uh, and nobody did that in those days. Um, so, you know, he he was a big deal, really, at the time. What was the public perception of corruption? It sounds like what you're saying, they thought everything was hunky-dory. Nowadays, over the last sort of half a century, so many corrupt situations have come out where people kind of think, oh, there's bent coppers here and there. But back in the 60s and 70s, what was the public perception? 
Well, an indication of that would be the fact that juries rarely disbelieved police officers. So a police officer giving uh, statements against a criminal was nearly always believed, even if it um, even if some of the evidence sounded a bit unlikely. The idea that the police would get up and, and swear an oath and 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 lie to frame somebody uh, was fantastic. I mean, it just seems so unlikely. I mean, I think the perception these days is that uh, we're not quite so accepting and and welcoming to what, whatever the police say, and there's a lot more questioning and uh, about what what's going on. Yeah. Uh, no, he, he he resigned. He was coming up to retirement age, and there was um, there was an issue coming up that he disagreed with the government about, and he, he just thought it would be a good time for himself to re- retire. And he looked to make some uh, to basically boost his retirement years by doing some work outside of policing, which he did. He did advertising and a few other things. He became the face of various advertising campaigns. Um, I mean, I think a few years, I think five years is quite a long time for uh, it in the in the last 30, 40 years. Five years is quite a good stretch. Mm. And I think the job has probably become more and more difficult anyway. Uh, we're seeing that these days. In Mark's day, of course, he had the Home Secretary to answer to. Um, these days, the, the Met Commissioner has got the, the Mayor and... Home Secretary as well. So he's got two political masters, which makes it a very difficult job, I think. Are these corruption scandals in all forces? I know we focus on the Met a lot because it's our kind of our main police force, right? It's in London, the biggest city, the capital. There must be corruption in other forces, but why is it that in a force such as the Met, do you think, that even from the 60s, 70s, especially to modern day with all the stuff coming out and the Met is almost in a disgraced position at the minute. Mm. Why is it so prevalent in such a force as that? I think um, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, the Met is the biggest force in in the UK by quite a long way. Uh, it's slightly different to other police forces as well in that it's, um, it is answerable to Home Secretary. It's also in charge of things like security and, and, and quite big things, which um, smaller forces don't have. But there is certainly corruption in other uh, forces. I mean, if you that if the the uh, there's a drama documentary that started this week uh, about South Wales police. Oh, I've said an advert for that. What's it called? Something something town. Steel town murders. That's it. Yeah. Slightly bungled inquiry, um, but also on on BBC iPlayer you can see. Um, I think it's a three part documentary about the Cardiff Three, uh, and that was another case of uh, South Wales basically framing people for a murder. So, yeah, I mean, it absolutely happens in other forces. I think, you know, Scotland Yard, however, has got a sort of international reputation as being the standard for top policing. So when things happen in London with with this great big force, um, it it does resonate quite loud and clear. Yeah. I'm having um, John Williams, John Lincoln, he goes by two names on at some point soon. He wrote a book on... On the Cardiff Three back in the nineties, I think it was. Yeah, I, funnily enough, I've just bought his book, so I look forward to reading it. But yeah, 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 yeah same. Good writer. Why do you think police officers become corrupt in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think people join the police force 
to become corrupt. I, I think, um, I mean, there's a few who do, who are referred to as sleepers, who are people who get through the vetting and, and basically are, are always wrong ones who uh, probably have allies in in the criminal world outside. But that, that, I mean, I should think that's very small. I mean, most people don't join to become corrupt. I mean, one or two people that I've interviewed in the book talk quite movingly about this in a way, you know, that, I mean, they join the force. There's a pressure to want to belong. I mean, you know, your ambition is to join the force. There's very much a kind of in the ranks kind of mentality. You want to be accepted. You see things going on, which perhaps you don't agree with, but it's basically, you know, perhaps your superiors are going along with it or condoning it or turning a blind eye to it. Um, You want to be accepted. And it's the thin end of a wedge. You probably start doing things that you probably wouldn't have imagined yourself doing to start with. But it starts off with small things, you know, like I think a lot of people have studied this and said, you know, it starts off with small things, accepting freebies here and there, the odd coffee, the odd this, turning a blind eye to things. You're under a lot of pressure as well to kind of be one of the team um, and not be someone who sticks out. So it, it can be very difficult if you do stand up against what you see going on. And, you know, I've spoken to Jackie Moulton in, in the book and she tells a rather, I mean, this is absolutely nails why people perhaps go along with things. She did act when um, wrongdoing was reported to her. And as soon as she'd done that, the next time she walked into the canteen at West End Central Police Station, everybody got up and walked out. Wow. And that is a fairly devastating thing to happen to anybody, to have all your colleagues just turn their back on you like that. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to kind of be one of the team, you know, and um, stick by your mates, really. Yeah. I think luckily Jackie's a strong enough woman to uh, not be not be put off by a situation such as that. Didn't stop her from having a, a stellar career in the police. and You know, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, that was – I think she had some real – tough times like that i mean that's not that's not fun no one most of us could not go to to work with that kind of pressure i think it would be very you've got to be a really strong person absolutely you spoke to quite a few previous detectives based on what i've seen here most of them sort of in the 70s and 80s was there a common discussion point that you had with them perhaps regarding something around because the speculation at the minute is about onboarding and vetting was there anything like that back in the 60s and 70s that they had concerns with that could have led to people becoming corrupt, exploiting the system, for example? I think I think the, the idea of, of some people, like a tiny number of people being these sleeper-type corrupt officers wasn't as big then as it probably is these days. I mean, I think also these days part of the problem is that officers have got a lot of access to the police national computers. So they have a lot of... Uh, access to intelligence which obviously officers back in the day didn't have quite that that reach into the whole (laughs) uh, police intelligence uh, network so these days anyone who does become a police officer has got access to stuff which is highly valuable to criminals Um, but in those days I don't think they had that kind of concern so much they they did talk about I did talk to them about why they wanted to do anti-corruption work because it was so unusual at the time to do that and you really stood out and quite a few of them have stories about basically having you know being shunned and treated like a prior by other officers because 
you you would deem to be sort of more interested in uh, arresting coppers than you were in arresting criminals and uh, and that kind of attitude. But then again, the ones who did do it were, were sick of the corruption that they they had experienced and seen, and you know made the the leap to take on this really tough job of of investigating their colleagues. What's the I want to say interview process, but I suppose the protocol when it comes to charging one of your fellow officers with a crime such as that, because I work in banking and we have different protocols for staff members, you know, because people work with them and you don't want gossip to spread. Was there a change in their procedure when it came to actually trying to convict and arresting their colleagues? I don't think it was an easy way of doing it, really, or a, a, a sensitive way of doing it. One of the police officer, uh, detectives I spoke to said, it, "One of the he said there were two really difficult things he found uh, as a detective uh, and a police officer. One was informing relatives uh, of uh, the death in a family, and the second one was arresting a detective at home in front of their family. So, you know, they were arrested in front of their." their loved ones in the same way that a criminal would be i suppose so yeah it was it was difficult however they did it was there a necessity to ensure that you were 100 percent like you had all the right evidence because sometimes i imagine if you arrest someone and you don't know them they're not involved in the force then you later release them that's far less embarrassing than if it was one of your own peers well there had been the times investigation had been resulted in i think three officers quite junior being found guilty but i think a lot of people that investigated that realized that there was a far bigger network of wrongdoing going on which had been covered up by one or two bent detectives uh and so the next time this came along which would, would be with the porn trials that i mentioned earlier of the early 70s they put years into investigating the crimes to make sure that they had rock solid cases against all of the main players and that succeeded in the end but it took years of lengthy investigations interviewing before they were finally able to get to a stage where they can investigate all the senior officers including commanders uh who were guilty so it was basically yeah they had to make sure they got all their their ducks in a row and had cast iron case before they um, ever approached serious wrongdoers the story will continue after these quick messages and now back to the story kind of answered it already but how high up did this go who were these key players how senior were they well the porn trials were the most spectacular anti-corruption effort of of that era and that went up to uh many senior officers and that included two commanders inspectors uh, as well as a few constables as well so that was a a really effective uh investigation which i think is largely seen to be a success by most by most people i want to know more about ted hastings because i've only seen clips of line of duty on gogglebox which is how i find out about most tv shows (laughs) i watch other people watch tv he seems like a no-nonsense, catchphrase-worthy, doesn't-take-any-prisoners kind of guy. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, which I think it is, 
how similar is his personality to Robert Marks? I think, uh, well, they're both outsiders. So um, Ted Hastings has come from uh, Belfast in a similar way that uh, Robert Mark was an outsider. They both have this this kind of they're not going to turn away from any corruption if it's if it's politically expedient or good for their career to turn a blind eye to things neither of them would do that they're that type of uh you know they're going to get the job done to, despite the the fact that it will um, make them unpopular so that they have that they have that in common i mean adrian dunbar the actor who plays ted hastings has um, basically made the part his own i think when the series started he was very much a kind of traditional boss type figure um but by the second series his 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 um character is kind of growing and i think it, it's partly because of the um performance of of adrian dunbar who actually ad-libs one or two of his uh his lines that have become huge hugely hugely popular and so he's also i mean unlike robert mark Ted Hastings tends to kind of go a bit too far over the line and becomes suspected of being corrupt himself during line of duty. Although we find out in the end that although he has broken a few rules, he's at heart still on the right side of, of the law in, in the sense that he wants to still nail the, the um, corrupt influences within the police that he's, he's looking after. So they are, He's a kind of spiritual embodiment of of that kind of thing of of being uh, a good anti-corruption cop, but he's not necessarily, you know, really closely based on Robert Mark. Was there anyone who suspected Robert Mark of being involved in corruption at all? I don't think there were. No, there were never any allegations against him. Um, in his autobiography, he talks about seeing things that were a bit dodgy in his youth as, as a police officer. So I think he 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 he'd been around, you know, like sort of rough questioning and and violence used against people being questioned in police stations back in the nineteen forties. But I, there's no question he ever sort of did anything like that. He certainly, I mean, there was never any questions of him being getting any backhanders or anything like that. He he was a pretty straight arrow, really. Did you manage to speak to him whilst researching the book? No, he he died a few few years ago. So, all right, that that'd make it difficult then. Yeah, <laughs> I read his book, which is very good. So, what was your inspiration for the book then? Why Line of Duty, Ted Hastings, Robert Mark? Why this subject? Well, the the book is about a slightly bit more than Ted Hastings as well. So, it's also about the the fact that although Line of Duty is this hugely popular and very very high standard piece of entertainment a real thrilling crime drama with absolutely top stars and it. I mean, it attracts huge stars to to appear in it it actually works on two levels and all the storylines are completely fictional car chases and, and shootouts and stuff but all the corruption in it is real so it works as a, a hugely successful popular entertainment but it's actually asking real questions about corruption in society and it, it references a lot of real cases during the course of the drama so um Stephen Lawrence Daniel Morgan the, the the detective who was murdered and many many other cases Jimmy Savile are all referenced at various times throughout the six series so it's an interesting series because it's great entertainment but it actually asks serious questions at the same time and there aren't many 
top dramas that that do that often. Um, so I, I thought it was an interesting thing to write about to look at the the real side of the things that it's covering and touching on all the time. What's the reaction been from police forces or even from disgraced officers regarding the show and its content? Well, I mean, the officers I've spoken to were interesting. I spoke to one officer who was not a fan of Robert Mark and felt that he'd disparaged CID unfairly. And I spoke to other detectives who were a huge fan of his and, you know, wanted to talk because they admired him so much and thought he'd done a great job. And if you say to them, what do you think the police force needs today? One or two of them said to me, we need Robert Mark today. So that's been the kind of reaction that I've had from now retired detectives. What do they think would change if we had Robert Mark today? Why do they long for that so much? I think that you wouldn't get the prevarication and the downplaying of corruption that you get from the police today. You know, whatever, however good or whatever faults Cressida Dick had, I mean, she did say that we've got the the odd wrong on in the police. Well, most people don't think it's the odd wrong on these days. And we, we can all see that there's a lot more that's that's wrong with the police. And Robert Mark was certainly somebody who confronted the whole problem and didn't try to downplay anything or sweep anything under the carpet or try to protect the uh, reputation of the police. He said, look, we've got a problem. Let's deal with it. You think the Met take enough responsibility regarding some of their the odd wrong-uns, as Cressida Dick put it. No, and I think that's probably why they're in such a... I mean, they're in a big mess today. They're in a worse position today, I think, than they were in the 1970s. I think corruption is probably worse. I think their vetting of officers joining the police is obviously problematic. Um, They have all sorts of inappropriate people joining, people with criminal records, people with records of violence and, you know, other things. And arrest rates are going down and we see all these other problems with um, misogyny and racism. So I think that basically the police have been sliding into this awful situation for quite a long time. I mean, I must also say that one or two officers said to me, and I I would agree that the number of cuts that the police have had to their budget uh, and manpower um, down the years has has certainly not helped them either. Do you think police officers get, the same amount of respect as they used to do back in the day. So you mentioned that at the start of this conversation, how a police officer's word was final and believed, which to me speaks to a volume of respect from the community to the officers. Nowadays, it seems like quite the opposite. It almost seems to be a negative to become a police officer, which is potentially affecting recruitment and who's applying for these jobs and the vetting because they need the numbers. I guess A to my question is, is it as respected as it used to be? And B, if not, how do we improve that reputation again, do you think? Well, um, I don't think they are respected today. I mean, I think there were always sections of society that didn't respect the police. But I think these days um, it's even it's probably more widespread into the general citizenry um, that people have got very low opinion of the police and their effectiveness in dealing with crime. And I also, I mean, that has to make you feel a bit for the people actually are in the police and and trying to do the job properly. Because the one thing which Robert Mark did recognise was that the police cannot function properly if if they don't have the support of the public. 
Um, they can't do it on their own. They're, they're just completely cut off from society in that case. So they need to interact with people. They need to have a, a constructive relationship with most people. And if they are held in low regard, uh, it makes the job even more difficult for them. And how do they regain respect? I mean, I think the, the Met perhaps needs to reform itself or be reformed or be got rid of and then re-established in, in a different form. But it needs to be seen to be doing that as well by the public. I mean, people have to see that it's changing and see that policing is more effective and in tune with what people expect of it. And, you know, all, all, the, all the scandals that we're seeing at the moment with terrible behaviour by certain groups of police officers, people being arrested at the, at the coronation and, and all these other things. I don't think all, all this stuff is just having a trickle effect on, on undermining um, people's respect for them. Do you envisage some kind of uprising in the future from Joe Public? Not like a, an old civil war, us against the government <laughs> kind of thing, but you know how when they have these massive lash, lush events, sorry, like the uh, the coronation and the money that's spent on it and people hate that and the protesting, they're getting arrested at the coronation, it almost does feel like something could be brewing to that effect. Well, uh, yeah, I have to say, when I when I started as a reporter in the 80s, I was uh, working at the Hackney Gazette as a, uh, a crime reporter at the Hackney Gazette. At that period, there were riots a lot. I mean, there were, um, and people were taking to the streets a lot to protest. And in Hackney, there was very poor, um, there was a breakdown in relations between uh, much of the population and the police. And people did take to the streets. I mean, obviously, we no one wants to see that happen again. But I think, you know, who knows what will happen in the future if people feel disengaged and, and uh, are struggling uh, with, with various issues in the world and the police are have got a, a sort of... I mean, if the government uses the police in a way where they are um, basically stamping on people and people's rights, I think there will be possibly trouble. Yeah, I mean, who, who knows? I mean, I don't think... Um, People think they people have always had the right to express themselves in uh, protest, and if there are, are constant incursions on that right, I think it could get uncomfortable. Given where society is nowadays and the culture of, you know, look at someone the wrong way and they'll accuse you of harassment. Everyone's filming everything on phones. Do you think? that relationship between the public and the police can ever be recovered by where we think those people are not superiors, but those people are to be respected. That is the law enforces. That is what they are rather than don't touch me. That's assault and all the stupid stuff you see on these social media channels. Do you think that's possible with where society is and where it's going? I mean, my impression is that policing has to be very good these days. And I think that there are, extremely good police officers around who are able to deal in those situations. They, they have the experience. They're good at talking to people, which is part of the job. You, you have a problem where you have officers who are not very good at talking to people and think that they should just, you know, what whatever they say goes. And it's policing by consent. And when you um, have confrontational officers, that's when things start to go wrong. And like you say, in this day and age, I, I think there's less kind of def people don't defer to authority so much. 
So in a way, policing has to be better, which means which all comes down to training and leadership, I would imagine, in, in the force. Officers need to be sort of taught and, and shown very clearly how to behave and deal with things. I mean, I, it's a very difficult job, um, I think, to deal with the general public in, in very difficult situations. So, yeah, they need good training and they need to be setting, they need to be seen to be doing the job properly, I think. I think the police are armed well enough because you see on the news, I certainly do around here, in my hometown, Huddersfield, you'll see people not just with knives, but there was a kid interviewed recently and he must have been 16. And the reporter was taken aback when he whipped out a sawn off shotgun. And this oh was a, a high school kid. You know, he knew he had a knife and he asked him, What else do you have? And he whipped out this sawn off shotgun for protection. Now, the police, what, wow. do they what do they carry? A truncheon and a taser? Do you think they're sufficiently armed to deal with threats on the streets nowadays? I mean, I would have thought they probably are because they can, they can call in armed backup uh, when necessary. And that must be a, a fairly big exception, having a school kid with a shotgun. So by and large, I would say they probably, yeah, I would say they probably are well-armed enough. I do fear for them. I've got a couple of old friends who have joined the force, good guys, young guys, yeah, and you yeah. just think, you just you can imagine something coming up on the news and something tragic happening, which would be just awful. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, it's a, a difficult job. It is. You've just got to keep hoping that people with the right mentality, the right intentions are joining the force and that hopefully the vetting, especially with the Met, does get tightened. But how do you balance that when you need staff? If your vetting's too difficult to pass, or, and from people that want to come in, what, how do you balance that with the funding, the lack of funding as well? Difficult to balance. Well, exactly. It? I mean, I think they they need to. You know, they've lost so many officers now, and and to now say, oh well, we're going to start recruiting more. But that's unfortunately, they, they seems to me like they've just lost a lot of expertise and experience with all these cuts. It takes time to get all that back. I mean young officers coming in like perhaps your friends need to have good sergeants and people showing them the way and 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 explaining to them what the pitfalls are and how to get around it and and how to um you know make make the job work i think if you you can't just kind of replace that by having a, a recruitment drive the police need to be not used as a political football by having so many cuts i mean you know in London, I think we're going to end up with something like 34 police stations, where there, there used to be several police stations in every borough at one time. Now, I mean, you can go for miles before you come across police stations. So people start to feel like, well, I can call the police, but they're so far away by the time they get here. What's going to happen? You know? Yeah. So I think it's very difficult. A lot of people taking law into their own hand for that reason. They yeah. think, well, what's the point? It's going to take them three hours to get here. I might as well deal with it myself, which is a shame. Well, I mean, I think that also works for the, for the criminals as well. They think the police are so far away. We can do what we like. And by the time they get here, we're away. Well, it's a sad state of affairs. But yeah, it's an interesting conversation, Robin. I appreciate you coming on and speaking to me again. Just a reminder, the real Ted Hastings, the true story of the copper at the heart of Line of Duty, was released on May 11th, published by Mardle Books. I'm going to put a link in the description for you. And yeah, appreciate you coming on. Any plans for the future? No, this has just come out, but what's next on the agenda, Robin? I, I'm just looking at various cases and, and, and things to follow up at the moment. So um, yeah, I'll uh, I'll be in touch as soon as there's something exciting on the horizon. 
please do. You can make your hat trick of appearances on the show. That'd be great. <laughs> Good luck with it. <laughs> Thank you. So for everyone listening, put a link in there. Make sure you pick up a copy of The Real Ted Hastings. And until next time, I'll see you later.